everyone and welcome to this episode of Epimonia's Safer Room Podcast. Epimonia is a company that was started in 2017 by Mohammed Malim, a Somali refugee living in the U.S. At Epimonia, we sell bracelets made out of life jackets worn by refugees on their dangerous journey across the Mediterranean Sea to Greece, where the jackets are collected. All of our products are made by refugees in the U.S. and our profits go to our nonprofit partners who support refugees. Our bracelet is a symbol of strength for refugees living in the U.S. that no matter where you're from or how you got here, you are as much a part of our country and you have just as much to offer as U.S. born citizens. You can buy our products and learn more at epimonia.com. Every Tuesday, we interview a new guest to hear their take on the refugee crisis and hear what they're doing to help. The name Safer Room comes from a quote from U.S.-Iranian author Dina Nayeri, it is the obligation of every person born in a safer room to open the door when someone in danger knocks. Today's guest is UNHCR spokesperson and communications officer and manager of the Instagram page Refugee Diaries with almost 10,000 followers, Batul Ahmed. We start with you giving us a brief background about how you got into this work and where you where your experience started. So um, let's go back to um, when I was a lot younger. Um, mm-hmm. So I started volunteering with, uh, with refugees when I was about 14 years old at my when I was at my local secondary school, um, we I live in an area where we have a local refugee day centre close by. So one of my teachers was encouraging us to do um, voluntary work, and um, and I would go with her sometimes on my lunch break to to support uh, in that in that centre. And um, I did basic things really at the time. There was a number of Iraqi refugees that were coming, and I would sometimes help with the language, like with the translation, or spending some time with the kids in the creche. Uh, mm-hmm. whilst the parents did their paperwork and stuff. So I've always known I wanted to go into this field. This is something I've always known. I wanted to, I didn't know specifically it would be UNHCR, but I've always known that I wanted to go into the humanitarian field and do something in in that. Um, so then that brought me, you know, towards what I studied. I went on to university and I studied, I did my master's in violence, conflict and development studies. And I specifically focused on issues of migration and population movements and, and the rest of that kind of stuff. Um, and um, in terms of actually uh, getting experience, I did an internship with the UNHCR in, in Beirut, in Lebanon. And uh, so that's that was my first introduction into um, working with UNHCR. And I enjoyed my internship so much. I, I then went on to apply for a job and it was a very junior role at the time, but they needed a communications person. And it was just at the start of the of the Syria crisis. So, mm-hmm. you know, at the time when I was working in Lebanon, there was something like the 10,000 refugees and they were mainly Iraqi and Sudanese refugees. And then the Syria crisis was picking up pace and then they were recruiting, obviously, to expand the team to respond to the to the, um, the refugees that were coming into Lebanon. So it was a junior role and it was in northern Lebanon. So I applied for that job and I was very lucky to get it. And um, yeah, and that's how I started. And, you know, I've been with them ever since. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so you are yourself a former refugee. You've been volunteering with refugees since you were in school and now you've been with you for the past eight years, I think. So. Right now, today, what does your work consist mostly of? So, yeah, so my family and I, myself, I was born in Sierra Leone and uh, and we lived there um, for the first 12 years of my life. And unfortunately, due to, um, you know, the, the civil war, um, mm-hmm. we, we had to leave and uh, and we fled so many times growing up. I, I honestly, I've, I've lost count, but my mom remembers them more vividly um, mm-hmm. th- than I do. Um and then finally, we came to the UK as uh, as refugees. We, 
you know, we were given, uh, you know, we applied for asylum and then, and we've been here ever since, uh, here in, in, in the UK. Um, mm. And um, my work throughout the years, I've worked for UNHCR in communications in what we call the, um, the public information uh, section, if you want, public information and uh, external relations. Um, and I've been a communications officer and a spokesperson. At the moment, my particular job is um, is slightly different. So it's still in communications, but I'm doing more work on the public outreach, um, advocacy, and campaigns team uh, at a global at a global level. Mm-hmm. So um, prior to that, um, you know, um, I've been I've worked in field operations. Um, I don't know if you want to go into that now, but. Um, prior to that, that's what I was doing. I was doing more communications work from from the field in different operations. So that was the more journalism part where you would go into the field and see what was happening and report back? Yeah, I mean, you can call it that. That's what most people, when I try to explain what it is we do. So mm-hmm. as communications officer for UNHCR, we call it public information communications officer. You are assigned to a particular duty station and you're there on the ground and your job is to report what is happening, um, you know, and that could be by doing interviews with the press or it could be by writing stories, producing you know, what we call briefing notes to, you know, to, to brief the media on certain um, issues. UNHCR, mm-hmm. as you know, is, um, you know, it's a refugee agency where mandate with the protection of refugees with the protection what we mean is it's you know people think of it in the in the physical sense of protection but um, protection is a whole range of things so it's ensuring people are safe it's ensuring people have legal documentation it's ensuring that people have somewhere to live you know it's a it's a whole range of things making sure that people live in dignity their rights are protected it's a number of things and uh, so I'm part of that team and my job is to communicate one on the humanitarian situation in the various countries that I've worked in um, and, that, and that's really the most important thing to relay what is happening on the ground what the humanitarian needs are um, mm-hmm. as well as to ensure that the people who are there that their voices are heard because at the end of the day it is really important that their stories are told in their own words in their own voice and that's something that's really really important because I, as much as my job is or in those field operations has been as a spokesperson it's also really important to make sure that the voices of the people who are going through this you know this experience and this ordeal that they're talking and their voices are heard and we try to do that through the different um, ways of storytelling that UNHCR does on the various platforms as well um mm-hmm. So a lot of people, when I explain it, they're like, so it's essentially like what journalists do. You, you, you can say that. So we are reporting on the ground, you know, what is really happening. And, and that's, that, that's essentially it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely do want to talk more about the importance of storytelling. Um, but I do have a couple of questions. First, more about your experience, both as a former refugee and with refugees. You have a very, very in-depth perspective of the refugee community before, during and after seeking asylum and, you know, assimilation and all that. So one thing that part of our mission at Epimonia is to dispel a lot of misconceptions that people have about refugees. And this could be specifically in the U.S., the false stereotype that refugees are low-skill workers or that, you know, refugees from certain regions are terrorists or something. And so I'm curious to know what you think are some of the most frustrating false assumptions about refugees. And then after that, uh, what role you think the media plays in that and why you think the media does this? So, yeah, I mean, it's very, it's very, very unfortunate that there is a lot of misinformation, misrepresentation mm-hmm. um, of, uh, of refugees. Um, I think the, the first thing that really frustrates me is that, and this is the, the way, unfortunately, I believe society 
um, operates or works is that people are very much fixated in like with numbers, you know, statistics. And yes, yeah. so there is always this focus on thousands of people have fled this many thousand people have you know have fled and this many thousand people have uh, have been displaced and you know that kind of that kind of stuff so the human beings within these numbers as cliche as it sounds tend to get lost and their stories and their plight mm-hmm. tends to get lost in this because people are so fixated on the numbers yes of course it's important to to show the scale of the you know of the crisis wherever it happens to be that that is important but um because of the, the fixation on that kind of stuff, um, you tend to forget that these are actually lives. These are people like yourself, like myself, you know, like, you know, had families have full on lives before and then through no fault of their own, um, completely, you know, outside of their control, they were they were displaced and suddenly they, they need help. And, mm-hmm. and that's why they flee and they, they need help. And, you know. And so, and the other thing is, is it's the way refugees um, and displaced people are represented in the media. It's what you said, like low skilled and, you know, and that sort of narrative that that keeps getting repeated. And and it's not true because a refugee is a label that we have given. I don't say we, as in we, as in the world has given, you know, to to try to make Mm -hmm. sense of a certain situation. But once someone has that label, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are X, Y, or Z. It's just an individual who has had to flee because Mm -hmm. of persecution because of you know for 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 whatever reason so um you know that there is this narrative of the refugees are low skilled and refugees are burdens and it's really really not true and we've seen it time and time again and we saw it especially now during this pandemic you know in so many instances where they needed help refugees were one of the first groups of people and communities to step up on the front line to help whether it's refugee medics who are saying you know sign us up we've got the qualifications we're desperate to work we saw it across the world Mm-hmm. And we saw how within their own communities they took charge and they took they were like, OK, right, we know we can support in you know spreading information and awareness, raising awareness about this. So refugees are, again, individuals, they're people like anyone else who can contribute to any society. All they need is just the opportunity. And usually what it, what it is that holds refugees back and, you know, in instances where they can't work, it's, you know, it's it's policies, it's uh, it's laws, you know, like that are very restricting. Mm-hmm. So if you do have flexible policies if you do have like you know a permissive sort of environment then refugees can certainly contribute and 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 they can work i mean personally for me i've never met a refugee that has not one of the first questions they ask me other than you know where can i send my children to school or how quickly can i send my children to school is really i want to work how can i work mm-hmm. you know um, and, and, and that's that's very frustrating refugees are certainly assets and i don't say this just because i work for refugees I say this because it's genuinely what I have seen. And I mean, and I, I, if I can go back to my own story, when I look at, for example, my, my brothers, um, we came to the UK as, as refugees and we were given an opportunity, you know, to, to grow here. And, you know, obviously it, it was because of, um, you know, the UK, I, I will always say, you know, I'm very grateful to the fact that we were able to go to school here. I'm very grateful to the fact that we were given protection here and, you know, we were able to to get an education and to, and to live our life. So we got a second chance. And so when I look at, say, my brothers who are both one of my brothers is a surgeon and my other brother is, is, a, is a pharmacist. And Mm -hmm. so both of them, you know, very, very accomplished from refugee backgrounds, but then they're contributing to the to the country that has taken them in and given them the opportunity. So this is really and, you know, these are just two examples. I look around me, around the people that I know, and there are so many, so many more examples, um, you know. So Mm -hmm. um, I think is is there is a certain narrative that has been 
repeated time and time again. And I don't think it's accidental. And then it perhaps brings me to your next question about the role of the media. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, political discourse certainly drives me- media coverage. You know, it, it drives media coverage. And um, there is, there is a, depending on the, you know, um, how can I say this? There is, I always feel like there is, there is deliberate misinformation to continue painting refugees in a certain way, because in certain countries, you know, there is a certain political view that needs to be um, portrayed. Mm-hmm. And so, and uh, and this narrative um, has been, um, I, I call it fear mongering, you mm-hmm. know, like trying, and, and, and because a lot of the people, when I worked in Greece, for instance, I remember I was there in Greece and it was honestly one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. And, I, I still remember I was there on the ground. So I was seeing the reality of what was happening. And then you would watch the news and all they would focus on is these boats. And they would only focus on showing like lots and lots of people and they'll give it 20 seconds or so on the news. So someone mm-hmm. who's sitting on the other side of the screen is, is looking at this going, oh, my God, these people. It kind of looks like they're coming to invade in some way. Like what are the you know, like what's right. going on? Because it's kind of a bit out of context also, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you're on the ground and you're seeing genuinely how desperate this situation is. Um, and, uh, you know, and this is not just uh, this is not just in Greece. I was just saying that, you know, how the media chooses to portray certain things. And and there is this impression that refugees are either backwards or refugees, you know, come from a specific kind of religion or they all look the same. Or refugees are like these poor people who are coming to like, you know, I don't know, add an additional burden, like I said, you know, or take mm-hmm. jobs from people. I don't know, like these kind of this kind of narrative. And, and it, it's just not true. It really, really isn't, you know, mm-hmm. um, it isn't because, like I said, so many of them come from, well, actually all of them come from, they had other lives and they were working, they were functioning, functional people. So mm-hmm. there are teachers, there are doctors, there are, you know, anything, you name it, artists, musicians, whatever. Um, and yeah. And mm-hmm. then, but then they're all painted with this one brush of refugees and they're just coming here as, as this added burden and we don't need that. And it's very, very unfortunate because it really couldn't be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. And so telling these more individual stories and attempting to humanize these people as not just refugees, but a mother, a father, a student, a chef, you know, as you have been saying, is so, so important. And I think that it does it should go side by side with the numbers because the numbers and portraying how large the numbers are of refugees leaving certain countries or how large the numbers are of refugees who don't have access to education or to clean water, it's important, but it also dehumanizes. And so I think it's important to have a mix of the two. Um, And your page on Instagram, Refugee Diaries, um, do you want to explain more about when you started that and what specifically Refugee Diaries does as its mission? So I started Refugee Diaries when I joined UNHCR in Lebanon, but it was kind of, I've always liked to write. And mm-hmm. um, and I started to realize when I was working, it was really, really, really early on. And it was only, I think, in the last few years that I, I invested a bit more time in it. Because in the beginning, I thought, I you know, I'm hearing so many different things and I'm seeing so many different situations that I really felt I needed to, like, to, to share um, but also it felt like a way to like just to write, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it took a while for me to kind of get into it and to figure out, you know, what is it that I wanted to do with this page? But mainly it was to kind of to raise awareness um, and, and to humanize 
Um, mm-hmm. So that was the that was the purpose of it. And uh, I, like I said, over time, I got I, I understood it a little bit more because also at the time, I think you know, Instagram was still quite new. We were all trying to trying right. to figure it out how mm-hmm. it worked, what works, and what, what doesn't work. I mean, for me, I genuinely share stories of people that I come across. Um, and I wish I could share the stories of all the people I've met. But, you know, it's uh, it's impossible because there are so many inspiring stories. Um, but really, the idea is to humanize and to show a different face um, to to refugees and displaced people. So, so, you know, to kind of give a bit of context, to give the backstory. Like when you meet this person, wherever you meet them and this person happens to be a refugee, usually it kind of almost feels like for a lot of people like this is the starting point okay good let you know let, let's let's talk about what's going to happen next but these people came from something and they, they've left something behind mm-hmm. and you know there are still a lot of things that make them who they are other than this label of, of a refugee there are certain foods that they like and they miss there are family members that they've left behind so you know it's really important for me to give context and to yeah to humanize this person as much as possible and this I have to say is you know, as much as it's something that I love to do, it's also something that um, I would say I learned and I was very lucky from from the work that I have done and from the people that I have worked with. And I've been lucky to work with some really amazing people. Um, mm-hmm. And I, and so for me, it was it was just really important to make sure that we try to. Um, yeah, to t- try to tell these stories to as many people as possible. And, and that platform seemed like, you know, it was a new platform. It was something to try. And um, it, and it was a different audience, you know, um, because usually we're more this sort of stories or these sorts of stories. Usually you see on the news or in very kind of specific mm-hmm. uh, media outlets. Right. So because it's not necessarily everyone's cup of tea and it's not necessarily something that the whole world is interested in you know even though mm-hmm. we should be because it's an issue I feel that concerns everyone because mm-hmm. you know yeah. we are all people in the same you know the, the same planet um and I don't think that what what happens in one place concerns only that place I feel like we're, we're so much more interconnected um so for me that was a new platform and I thought great you know this is a new platform it's a new audience in some ways at least when it first started it seemed like it was kind of like a younger audience so it was it, it, and, it, and it kind of because of the photos it seemed like you know it, it's a more creative sort of uh, sort of platform so I thought okay mm-hmm. this could be this could be a good thing to try and uh, yeah and I mean and I'm glad I did I'm glad I did yeah so I think this would be a good time to ask um, a question I was planning on asking later on but so people have seen your Instagram page they've seen the pictures they've read stories about refugees they're fired up they've humanized the refugees and they want to help what can they do so the thing is it depends it depends on where you are and mm-hmm. what I and I always get this question in my in my inbox and and I feel like this is also one of the most the things that make me the most happy about having that page because other than sharing the stories there is a lot of engagement because I do get a lot of people who write to me especially like you know young girls who are at university and stuff and like they're studying and they're like you know mm-hmm. we, we we're inspired by this we want to help but also we want to get into this so I find I mean that really I, I really am encouraged by that so and I always say like for myself when I started helping, I started help. I don't think you need to necessarily be in the field to say that you are helping this cause. This is the mm-hmm. first thing. Um, when I was here in, in the UK, I was, again, like I said, volunteering at the Refugee Day Centre. Um, you know, that's something you can do in your local community. 
So, but if you want to say help someone that you felt moved by their story who's in Yemen, then what I can say is that you could do a bit of research. But from my end, I would say maybe what you can donate if you if you have the means. Obviously, not everyone has the means, um, and not everyone necessarily wants to to donate. So you can help by sh- maybe sharing some information, spread try mm-hmm. helping to you know spread awareness. Because that's also very, very important because also you see increasingly people who wouldn't necessarily engage in these kind of stories are engaging more. But that's because the information is reaching them through all these different channels that we now have. Mm-hmm. So by, you know, it, just retweeting or resharing something on Instagram, that that can help because that is trying to raise awareness. That is no matter how small your platform is, it could be your aunt. You, you could have f- 10 followers. And it could mm-hmm. be your aunt who you're introducing this story to who would have never heard about it otherwise, you know, and she might then be interested. So she might then, you know, be interested to donate or she might look at other ways that she can help. So, again, I know a lot of people feel like, oh, we don't want to donate because, you know, we, either we don't have the means or we don't know where the money is going. And that's a very personal choice. But it's one of the things I say you can donate. The other thing is you can help to raise awareness, educate people who are around you. And volunteer in your local community because there are a lot of initiatives. And, and, you know, being a humanitarian, it doesn't mean that you need to go to a war zone to help. There are a mm-hmm. lot of humanitarian causes at home. You know, there, humanitarianism is, is it's being a human being, you know, and finding mm-hmm. a way that you can help uh, others. So I would say for me, this is the kind of thing that I, that I usually say. I'm sure other people have other ideas of how, how you can help. But um, this is what I would uh, what I would suggest mm-hmm. I want to talk about specifically the donating and then after that talking about spreading awareness so the first question about donating is since you have experience with UNHCR and since UNHCR is kind of the agency to donate to if you want to help refugees um, it is a really large organization and so I imagine that people might be hesitant to donate to such a large organization over a smaller grassroots organization where they can see exactly where their money is going But as a UNHCR worker, could you talk about how UNHCR uses donation money and donated goods? Yeah, no, I mean, I I understand that. And, and, you know, there's a lot of people that share that concern with me. But I can only speak from my experience over the last eight years and from what I have seen personally at the field Mm -hmm. level. I have worked in Yemen. I've worked in Iraq. I've worked in I've worked in Lebanon. I've worked in Jordan and, and a number of places. And I have seen the difference that it really makes. So UNHCR has very it has specific expertise in a number of areas right and this has mm-hmm. is expertise that has been built over years so there are areas that they are very very good at and i have to say that there are teams on the ground that are really dedicated to making sure that people who need the help get the help and i have seen that i've seen the difference it makes on the ground i have seen how the life saving changes that it makes. And, you know, because it's such a big organization, like any big organization, there is criticism and that's fine. There is nothing without criticism, but mm-hmm. I've seen genuinely the difference that it makes on the ground. And I have seen the people it has helped. And it's not directly by, it's not always the things that you see. So a lot of people think, you know, we've given people this many, um, I don't know, this many blankets or this mm-hmm. many mattresses, for instance, you know, and obviously that's necessary, in, especially like in places where people have fled with nothing and they need these basic household items. And this is stuff that UNHCR gives. But there are other things that UNHCR works on that requires a lot of funding. And it's not necessarily something that is tangible or visible. And mm-hmm. an example of that is all the protection programs that we have. So UNHCR has a number of protection programs, for example, the psychosocial support that we offer um, displaced people and, and refugees. 
um, and that is not something that you can take a picture of and that's not something that you can you know you can show that you've given that but we we do have these programs we do have programs that support uh, survivors of sexual and gender-based violence again the same thing and mm -hmm. we have programs so these are not visible programs per se but they're crucial and really important programs and they're at the heart of what UNHCR does and uh, as well as that obviously you have the the, the other if you want quote unquote visible programs which are the shelter programs you know that put a roof over people's heads and these are these are visible things but there is and uh, other things that are not visible it's like supporting people because often when people leave when we always say this they leave and you have this split second to make a decision to leave you don't always have time to think about what to take and a lot mm -hmm. of the time unfortunately people either forget or they lose their paperwork you know like their documentation along the way and then when mm -hmm. they arrive somewhere if you don't have these documents because of the way our world works, you need these documents, you know, Right. Um, yeah. whether it's an ID card, you know, things that we take for granted, but these are things that make you seem as if you're not, in, well, make you not invisible. So they make you visible and, you know, Absolutely. otherwise you don't exist. So UNHCR does help people to get documentation. For example, babies that are born in another country, um, but babies that are born as refugees, UNHCR helps to make sure that these kids have the right birth certificate. You know, all these kind of like legal support, all that kind of stuff. That is a lot of important work that happens and it's not necessarily yes. visible. And so a lot of people might not know about that. But again, this comes back to the mandate of UNHCR, which is a protection mandate. And these are key protection issues to ensure that people, one, live in dignity, but they have, um, you know, they, they have the support that they need because being displaced or being a refugee is not easy. It's one thing to be so brave to be and have the courage to, because I think to, to you have to be so brave and have so much courage to decide, right, I'm going to flee because I want to try to live, you know, mm -hmm. and that, that's one part of it. And then once you arrive in another country, there's a whole host of issues. And that's mm -hmm. where UNHCR comes in. And a lot of the work really happens and is not necessarily visible. And, and I think that this is the most important work uh, that goes on. So from I can say from what I have seen, from the people that I have worked with, and I have seen the change and the help that people get and how life-saving it can be, mm -hmm. um, I personally would, and, and this is why I say, you know, if you could, please donate to UNHCR. And but I mean, this doesn't say, this doesn't mean, sorry, that people can't do research and donate to other organizations. Because UNHCR, mind you, yes, we are the, the, the UN Refugee Agency, but we don't work alone. You know, mm -hmm. we work as part of a huge interagency network. So UNHCR might be the lead agency on refugee issues in a certain place, for instance, um, but we would have a huge number of partners, NGO partners included, that we work with. So UNHCR would have partnerships with, say, the Norwegian Refugee Council and, you know, the Danish Refugee Council and others and local NGOs, of course, as well. And mm -hmm. UNHCR would have programs that are implemented by these NGOs, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not everything that is necessarily done directly by UNHCR, but we work in partnerships because we recognize that different NGOs also have different expertise. So um, this is this is what I would say. This is based on my experience. This is based on what I have witnessed. And uh, and I hope that, you know, when people hear this, they'll be able to understand that there is a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes that doesn't necessarily, you know, you can't take a picture of it. This is obviously mm -hmm. on top of all the advocacy work that UNHCR does, you know, with, with governments to ensure, you know, there are flexible policies that allow refugees to to work and to, you know, and to integrate and, and all that kind of stuff. These are also things that happen behind the scenes and UNHCR plays a huge part in advocating for a more, um, a, a more, more, more protection space for, for refugees. Mm -hmm. 
So donating definitely helps without question. And then Absolutely. The other, yeah. Absolutely. And then the other part was um, spreading awareness. And you touched on that already, but I just, I think it can't be overstated and it can't be reiterated enough that just as you said, even if you only have 10 followers, sharing information is how we're going to change the status quo of supporting refugees and supporting others. So um, I want to talk specifically about the saturation of activism and advocacy on social media right now with Yemen in the past couple of weeks. And specifically a video of you talking about Yemen went viral on Instagram um, and it was just shared by everyone and then sort of forgotten about because trends are just that they're trends on social media. And so they get really big and then they sort of get forgotten about. But even that moment of being so viral put that case in front of so many people's eyes and brought up that story to so many people who wouldn't otherwise know it so that then they do know to donate or to find petitions to sign or to volunteer. So I think that you, you actually did kind of wrap up perfectly the importance of, of spreading awareness, educating yourself, and then educating others. So I guess that actually would bring us to the last question, um, which I ask at the end of every video or every episode, sorry. Can you recall an act of kindness that someone has done for you that you think is exemplary of how we should treat others? Um, I think uh, for me, I don't like, I mean, I know what you mean by the word others, the people who are not ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's very important that we realize that even though we might all be unique, you mm-hmm. know, in, in our own way, um, I, I think it's very, very important to not label people as other or different, different mm-hmm. in the sense that, yeah, of course we are all unique, you know, but as in, it's not, I don't like this narrative that a lot of people say, you know, there's, but, but they're refugees, so they're, they're different. How do you deal with refugees? We're people, you know, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you, and this might, and honestly, honestly, when, when you ask that question, the first thing that comes to mind to me is the, is the kindness I have received in, in refugee camps. So these are people who genuinely have nothing, mm-hmm. you know, as in nothing. And I mean, physically I mean, and material stuff. But right, they have a lot of, uh, of, you know, they have a lot of dignity and, and, and a lot of other amazing things. But um, in terms of like material things, these are people who have nothing. And I cannot tell you the countless number of times that I have been in a camp, whether it's a refugee camp or a camp for displaced people, even not just necessarily just camps, visiting a refugee family, you know, in their house, in, in, in one of the places that I've worked. The, the generosity is insane. Like they would have absolutely nothing, but they will give you whatever little they have. So I remember like mm-hmm. I had lunch with a family that was displaced in Iraq and they were freshly displaced. So all they had was, you know, the, the food package that they had received um, at the time, I believe, yeah, from the World Food Program. And they had like some tomatoes and cucumbers and they made sure they, they insisted that I stayed. And they mm-hmm. would cut up the tomatoes and the cucumbers and they gave me, you know, the biscuit that was in the in the food package. And obviously you don't want to take that because that's literally all they have. But they're so generous that they will be so offended if you don't, you know, mm-hmm. like they want to give you because that's what they would do if they were at home. So they take their, you know, their traditions, they take their culture and, you know, and they take and this is not to say that if they were ever to be in another country that they wouldn't integrate, no, they would, but they, you know, there are certain things that make them who they are that they Mm -hmm. don't lose just because they've lost all everything and they've left everything back home. And and this has happened over and over again. The amount of times I have been offered, you know, to sit and to have tea. And I I remember also um, 
in, in in also in Iraq another instance I was in a in a camp also and it was um, this Iraqi lady and she it, it was around Eid you know the end of mm-hmm. Ramadan and she was making some um, these traditional sweets in Iraq they're called kleshe and mm-hmm. um, she you know she, it's whatever little she had one of the things she'd taken with her was her um, this little notebook that she has where she writes her recipes mm-hmm. and uh, and so she's sitting there whatever basic ingredients she was able to buy and she's making these sweets because it was important to kind of keep that tradition for her kids and then there was only there was only so little you know but not only did she insist that I sit and I wait until it's ready so she can give me some she made sure that I took some back to the office mm-hmm. for all my colleagues and and I'm just like oh my god you're so blown away because it really is those who have so little that give the most absolutely it's it's really quite remarkable and this has happened time and time again it's happened with me in Jordan and Zaatari and it's happened you know in uh, in Lebanon in uh, you know with with Syrian refugees it's happened everywhere and Mm -hmm. it's just so humbling but it's just it's it's insanely also like yeah it's just you know yeah it's very very humbling And, and it stays with you because it's so it just really makes you realize you know, like you don't have to give so much. You, I don't have to have so much to to give. Mm-hmm. And you know, and and it's just yeah. So yeah. I think these are the things that really, really do do stick with me. Definitely, and that's identical to my experience in with refugees, both in Morocco and then in Rwanda too. Is that the people who have the least do tend to give the most and. Um, our guest on the podcast last week, Luol Mayan, we sort of started talking about this and he had defined kindness as one's belief in another person. And so that kind of explained it very well, that even though these people don't have a lot, again, material wise, they have an abundance of just optimism and hope and belief and love. And so what they have, they're more than willing to share and I do also want to thank you for pointing out the, you know, my use of the term others, because at the end of the day, that is the goal. And that's the goal of this podcast, too, is to remind everyone that we are all the same. There is no us and others. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you so much for joining us today, for offering your insights on all of this. And I'm so happy that we got to have you on the podcast. And I wish you the best of luck with everything moving forward. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate this opportunity. And for for everyone listening, do look up refugees, look up what is going on and mm-hmm. try to educate those around you. It doesn't matter if it's just your, your mother, your grandmother, your grandfather. Share share this information because we will create a ripple effect, you know, and we need Absolutely. to start somewhere. And there is certainly, you know, more there, there is a lot out there and there are so many different channels it could be in your family whatsapp group it could be by just sharing something on your facebook page it might be out of the ordinary for you and not the usual content that you would share but i feel like we mm-hmm. all have a responsibility to look after each other and you know and that is one way to make sure that someone who is struggling in one part of the world that we are in one way or another trying to support them in our own little way and that could just be by sharing something it could be by giving i don't know two or three pounds if that's all you have it really does make a difference. And I feel like one today it's them tomorrow. It could be any one of us because we've seen Mm -hmm. through what we've going through right now, how quickly life can change and how suddenly everything can change for all of us. So Mm -hmm. no one is immune to it and this can happen. And it's really just really important to remember that, that refugees, again, if I could just end on this are just like you and I, they're people who are living completely normal lives 
going out with friends, planning dinners and lunches, you know, people who had dreams, people who had plans, there's univers- people who were about to graduate from university, like any one of us, you know, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden their life was interrupted, completely out of their control and they just need help. They need help today, but, you know, if they're given help and the opportunity, they can definitely, definitely not only thrive, but really make such a huge difference to the community that, that takes them in. So I think it's just really important to, I, I'd like to end on that note, if that's okay. Of course. Thank you so much, Batul. Thank you. The music in this podcast was produced and performed by Elvis J, a refugee from Malawi now living in the U.S., and the cover art was designed and submitted by Samuel Nasabamana, a Congolese refugee now living in Rwanda. So thank you to the both of them. This week's episode was sponsored by Amplio Recruiting. Amplio is a staffing agency helping great companies hire dependable employees from the refugee workforce. They've placed 5,000 refugees into jobs across the U.S. If you think your company is open to hiring from the refugee workforce or you know a company who is, you can check them out at amplioRecruiting.com or on Instagram at amplio underscore recruit. So a big thank you as well to Amplio. Once again, you guys can visit our website, epimonia.com, or visit us at epimoniamn on Instagram to learn more and support the cause. Thank you for listening.